Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. In October of last year, a federal judge handed down a decision that blocked Bertelsmann, a privately held German owner of the largest publisher in the United States, Penguin Random House, from purchasing Simon & Schuster, the third largest publisher in the United States. Had this merger gone through, the government argued in an antitrust case, this would have harmed authors' advances and created additional barriers to entering the industry. In the March issue, Christian Lorenzen, who attended the trial, evaluates the arguments advanced by both sides and paints an extremely accurate picture of the business of books. I speak from some experience. Uh, My first job in New York, after working in several restaurants, was in Macmillan's digital marketing department, where, among other tasks, I managed Tom Friedman's LinkedIn account. I spoke with Lorenzen about crafting this piece, the trial, and what lies ahead for authors, readers, and the many people who work in publishing. Before I hit record on this, we were talking, we are talking shop, and I was talking with a couple other people who work here and elsewhere in publishing and about the piece. And they all agreed that like, it's like the best description of what it's actually like to work in publishing. So you're covering a trial, but also you have to express certain fundamental truths about the industry, I guess, which is a huge task. So what were you kind of, when you were setting out to write this, when you're figuring out how to express those things, what did you focus on and how did you pare it down to express those truths? Well, if you look at the coverage of the trial as it was happening, most of it kind of boiled down to either reportage written for people in the publishing industry who didn't need to have described to them what the publishing industry is like, or... There were also reporters there who worked for like legal antitrust type journals. If you weren't in those circles, you didn't see their reportage. Or just the New York Times, which was doing like very concise. I don't think they ran much about the trial until it was over and then when the decision was issued, right? And then there were a couple like nice pieces by... Alex Shepard in The New Republic, Katie Waldman in The New Yorker. I don't think they attended as much of the trial as I did. Um, I hung out with them while they were there. Katie was only there for a couple days, I think. Um, She wrote a good piece. And Alex, who writes a lot about publishing, was not quite writing a trade piece, but... um, kind of focused on what this means for publishing. Whereas I was trying to do like a, um, I was trying to document my experience of observing the trial with my, combined with my tangential relationship to the publishing industry as a book critic. And you know, as you're covering the trial, so the, the, as you know, at the start of the piece, you know, this is kind of an, an uncommon or a new sort of type of antitrust trial where the idea is typically with antitrust cases, the idea is that, oh, you're protecting the consumer from increased prices. This trial was basically in the name of, you know, like new authors, 
literary authors, authors who are not that well known because there are the big six. And if this merger had gone through, it would, have been, five. The, would have been the big five. No, it's, or, no it's, excuse the, me, it's excuse the big me. five becoming the big four. <laughs> the big possibly. five becoming the big four. Yeah. Sorry, I'm still stuck in 2013. Um, but, you know, uh, and over the course of the trial, there are a lot of really kind of amazing characters who are called to the stand, you know, Stephen King, Jonathan Karp, uh, who has done some cameos on Gossip Girl, uh, and, you know, like, the country's, like, best-known literary agent, Andrew Wiley, but there aren't, there were never, like, literary authors called to the stand? Well, or, there were only or... three authors called to the stand, um, Stephen King, Charles Duhigg and Andrew Solomon, who testified over video conference. And um, I mean, you could argue that all of them, I mean, none of them are exactly unliterary in that, you know, uh, I think all of them have been published by the New Yorker and the New York Times magazine, for example. Uh, Stephen King's writing has appeared in this magazine. But Stephen King appeared for the defense and talked about his own kind of rise as an author beginning in the 70s and getting very low advances but then becoming a bestseller because after was it Salem's Lot or uh Carrie, it was Carrie, Carrie yeah. uh was adapted for film and then became a bestseller as a result uh and he I think some of this got cut out of my piece he finished his testimony with a kind of um, tribute to struggling authors, um, including friends of his, his own son, who uh, started off with small presses, I think under the name John Henry, because he didn't want to benefit from his father's name, but has eventually had a pretty good career, or at least published several books and made his way up from small presses. Uh, so, I mean, at the same time, you know, there were several agents who testified, I guess only one for the, for the prosecution, which is to say the government who were, who were arguing on behalf of authors and agents, agents in this scenario, because agents are compensated on a percentage of authors earnings. They were sort of representing the, the parties who the government said were being harmed or potentially being harmed by the merger. Right. right. But, but the people, the actual sort of like smaller authors. Right. Were not represented, which is like, which is an interesting sort of twist of that. Like, how do you think author, like, you know, smaller literary authors felt about the case or what might they have said if they were called to the stand? Mm, I mean, that's such a broad category. Yes. You know? I mean, it could include me. I haven't written a book, you know, but I've certainly... Get cracking. Well, yeah. No, I have a meeting <laughs> next week to talk to an editor somewhere. Um, I mean, you know, there are a lot of authors with experience with the Big Five and elsewhere. There are a lot of authors who, who self-publish... Right. Published through Amazon. But it's crazy make... to call Stephen King, right? Well, <laughs> like, that, no, it's it not was, crazy, but it is. I, I mean, it wasn't. It, it made sense because he is a major figure in the Authors Guild. I yes. think that was how he came to the trial. 
and you know people know who he is so they listen to the things he says rather than calling i don't know some kind of like present day kafka uh who's toiling in obscurity but will one day be famous or i mean but i mean they could have like there is an in-between sure that's a a middle middle i mean but there were a lot of on both sides there were editors and agents speaking on behalf of those kinds of experiences um so i i don't know that and there was you know there was certainly testimony about a lot of the testimony focused on auctions for books that were in this range which is to say $250,000 advances and above and how those auctions played out and whether Simon and Schuster and Penguin Random House uh bidding directly against each other resulted in an increase of compensation for those authors like so there were so many cases brought up like that and the and we would have to listen to them in the public would have to listen to them blind the witnesses knew what books they were talking about and the lawyers knew what books they were talking about and the judge knew what books they were talking about but they had a decoder ring yeah but for (laughs) confidentiality reasons we in the audience did not know uh what what authors were being talked about we would know a, a crucial point in the trial which i didn't end up mentioning in my piece because the focus was slightly different uh was a discussion of an auction for a celebrity cookbook author multiple books and um the CEO of Penguin Random House America, Madeline McIntosh, had, um, there was email evidence showing that she had coordinated between groups in the Penguin Random House giant conglomerate of 90 um, imprints uh, to make sure they weren't upping the bids against each other, which is something that Penguin Random House claims or its its stated practice is to let its imprints bid against each other. So in Judge Pan's decision, she cited that as part of the evidence that uh, emerged Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster might behave similarly in the future, leading to um, decreased advances almost everyone who testified and was asked something along the lines of do you think advances are going to continue to increase even those uh arguing who were not in favor of the merger said said yes they thought advances generally would increase i guess the i but the idea is that in a environment where these two corporate publishers were merged the advances might not increase as much mm-hmm. you know yeah as they would given continued five publisher competition. And, you know, I think, you know, one of the strains throughout the piece is, you know, you sort of talk about the history of publishing, which you argue is kind of 
uh, like this kind of remnant of middle brow, this middle brow, middle brow revolution from the 1920s. But then you also get into like the history of Bertelsmann, which of course there's some Nazis, uh, you know, bought Napster, and you know the the this sort of these these little histories of the imprints and how they interact, or the the different houses and how they interact with each other throughout, you know, over the course of history. Is there an alternative understanding of the history of American publishing that you would like to just shoot down here? Or do you think it's just generally agreed upon that this is just like, this is this is more or less from the 20s, the industry is kind of in this mold? I guess what yeah. I would say is that um, one of the ways in which publishing was discussed at the trial was in terms of barriers to entry. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, the barriers to entry to the books market are actually rather low in that it's pretty easy to start a press. You know, people do it all the time. I know people who do it. Um, we see it happen all the time. However, it is basically impossible to do it right now on the scale that um on a on on a scale that resembles one of the big five mm -hmm. like you it would simply the big five publishers are the result of a consolidation that began in the 1970s and where basically you have these pre-existing smaller publishers uh, kind of inevitably merging or being bought as like a founder or the founder's offspring die and the, and the backlist, the intellectual property, which is to say what publishers buy isn't so much books as the right to, rights to publish those books in a certain country for a certain amount of time, mm -hmm. right? So when a publisher is being sold that's the the main value it's not so much the brand as that set of backlist titles right and those the those backlists have to go somewhere right and it makes sense that they would eventually go to bigger and bigger publishers so in a in an environment where uh these large corporations exist and we have the intellectual property laws that we have this corporate agglomeration is um it seems to me almost inevitable mm -hmm. you know i mean if we lived under a different system <laughs> different fi yeah, financial you know, system yeah, entirely we, yes. yeah if we lived under a different intellectual property regime mm -hmm. and a different you know system that wasn't capitalism <laughs> maybe things would be different but um, I stopped short of trying to figure out what happened to publishing after the Soviet revolution. Um, <laughs> but the, yeah, the striking thing is that, you know, this venerable independent magazine, uh, Harper's has been around since 1850. And, um, you know, there aren't a lot of media entities that have been around that long. The New York times and the Atlantic would be others. But if you think about the corporate media that we live with right now, which is to say like 
the broadcast networks, so like NBC, ABC, CBS, uh, most of the major film studios, because of the nature, because of the technological revolutions that happened in the early part of the century, uh, all of those, a lot of those are the remnants of uh, firms that were started up in the 1920s, like Paramount Mm -hmm. or like, uh, or Simon and Schuster and Random House. Um, And all the people who started them generally knew each other, came to know each other. In in, In the case of Random House and Simon and Schuster, Bennett Cerf, who started Random House, got into publishing because his friend Max Schuster was having a good time and he was jealous and wanted to get in on the game, basically. So in a way, uh, the merger was like getting the gang back together, right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing I think that is sometimes missing from these, you know, histories or considerations uh, is that the human factor where mm. it's like Hollywood was a small town. Yeah. Everyone was going to the same party. So uh, why wouldn't they talk about like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do a dream sequence like this. Like right. these little things that eventually become form or in, or financial, like these different the different ways in which who is in the room influences what this turns out to be. Well, and almost all of the witnesses who were from the publishing industry at the trial, many of them, although not all of them, had worked or interned or something at both Penguin and Random House and Simon and Schuster and Macmillan and Little Brown. You know, they it it's a revolving door. Right. So even if they were now at rival firms at one point or another, they probably had the same employer and could have been on the other side in terms of their loyalties or in how in favor of this they were. Yeah. Um, uh, and then there were a lot of people in the publishing industry who I that, who I spoke to who were, despite thinking that it was a bad thing to have as michael peach of little brown put it a uh, super dominant publisher which would have been the case in a prh sns merged entity uh they they thought that for their friends at simon and schuster because they all have right. friends who work there they would be less likely to lose their jobs in such a situation even though they probably there probably would be a lot of consolidation and layoffs as happened when Penguin and Random House merged, then if uh, they were bought by a predatory private equity firm. But then there, as people from Simon and Schuster insisted, I say there there are some non nightmare stories of private equity firms getting into the book business, as with. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. What a gentle ringtone. <laughs> Felix Surprise winner, Josh Cohen. <laughs> We're going to the movies after this. Oh, exciting. <laughs> uh, Big day out. <laughs> yeah, we're going to see the Baudelaireized Raymond Chandler uh, oh, Marlowe Liam movie. Yes. Liam Neeson. Yes. You can cut this, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but that's a perfect example of how it is. Oh, yeah. It's the, a small no, t- you know. Marlowe, it is. Um, 
And I almost put Josh's story in the piece. I don't know if we want to get into it here. Maybe we shouldn't. <laughs> or, he was an example. His editor at Random House had been laid off. He came with a new novel. His sales record was really good for the first novel he'd done with Random House. Not as good for the second and not as good for his essay collection. They declined to give him a deal on his book, The Netanyahu's. He went with a smaller press, New York Review Classics. Then he won the Pulitzer Prize for that yeah. book. And because he had a good royalty, better royalty deal with the smaller press um, than he would have had with Random House with a higher advance, he made a lot of money off royalties. Yeah. Anyway, Cinderella story. <laughs> But, you know, there, throughout the piece, there's all these, you know, books or dreams. Right. There's sort of, you know, this, this hopefulness that something can turn their little wishes, right? Like, it's kind of, it's funny, but also, as you point out, this is ultimately true, right? Because this is, you know, anything can bomb, anything can really sell, or it could just do nothing. Like, there's no, there, there are no well, guarantees. Well, on, on the one hand... Unless it's, like, no, uh, high-fiber keto. On the one, well, no, <laughs> on the one hand, like, uh, it was in the interest of the defense, which is to say Penguin Random House and Simon and & Schuster, to portray everything as gambling, and every every book as an uncertainty but and that's certainly true of first-time non-celebrity authors mm -hmm. right and even some celebrities come out with a memoir and it doesn't pan out as much as you know they would have liked and in fact there was one there was one weird line of testimony where they where someone said Someone, a celebrity adjacent author with a big social media platform can be just as good or even better than a genuine celebrity. I think that's like a, a an example of that might be like uh, Chasen Buttigieg or I don't know what his last name, <laughs> Pete Buttigieg's partner, right? Yes. Maybe, I don't, but I don't, I don't know if his book sold or not. Um, anyways, but that would be such a person. On the other hand... I'm not sure if it would count as the majority of big advances, but the majority, at a certain point, a lot of advances that are a lot of high advances or even mid-range advances are being paid to authors with a distinct track record. And it's less of a gamble. Um, and their, their advances are being calculated according to you know what they've made in the past and how how much how analogous their new book is going to be to what they've done in the past um so with if a like a, a successful commercial genre fiction writer is going to their books are going to sell in fairly predictable ways you know? right and i mean because the piece begins with this like kind of amazing flurry of like oddly clinical or just completely kind of cloying or absurd description of the books and the publishing industry and like there's lots of baseball metaphors I mean and and you know amid that flurry there is this repeated you know emphasis on the importance of editors right so like are editors vitally important to literary work and are uh, and our editors currently working at a at a, an American publishing house is performing something as essential as they did in the past 
Well, I think it varies. Certainly, editors do a lot of work and make a great contribution, especially on cert- on nonfiction books that um, that are written by authors with um, lower levels of professional experience. Sometimes that work is is. Uh, farmed out to freelance editors who are hired by publishers or hired by authors themselves. Um, I didn't mean to really, I didn't mean at all to disparage the work of editors. Oh, no, no. uh, In the way I was quoting that stuff, I just sort of thought that the quotations were they're hilarious amusing you know (laughs) the opening of the piece what I was trying to do there, there was a lot of material I wanted to put in the piece but I realized that there were only the way I wanted to write the piece. I could only do portraits of a few of the witnesses, but there were a lot of witnesses I wanted to quote without spending a lot of time identifying them, you know, and, and saying like, because a lot of their, it would, it would have become extremely repetitive because they all interned at uh, Random House or Penguin in the 90s, and then they all agented for a while, or, you know, they all went through very similar stages in their careers, and and every bit of testimony started off like that. And then, you know, most of the witnesses did come to a point where they said interesting or funny or remarkable things about the publishing industry, but uh, they also spent a lot of time just going through these auction case histories that were quite boring and it would and a lot of and each side would have their versions of you know the the prosecution would say would go through you know with each witness three or four examples of a direct competition between simon schuster and random house where the 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 uh advance was increased by their competition and then the defense would go through many examples where the the advance had been increased by competition between little brown and random house or what or what have you um so it was a really a war of attrition in that sense and and um sometimes stultifyingly boring at one point my sister is an editor at viking and at one point her boss was testifying and it, her name was mentioned in an email between her and her boss was brought up and i was like oh allison yay and then um, uh, I told her she was on vacation in Europe when, and she didn't. She was not a source for this piece at all. But I called her and told her that she had uh, had been mentioned on the stand. And then she said, "What did they say?" I was like, "It was too boring for me to even write down, and I can't remember." Um, but you got your shout out. <laughs> yeah. Do you think there's like you know going back to this idea of like these kind of the idea of books as as novels as like angels or what have you do you think there's a a correlation between grandstanding about the political value of this or that novel and a more profit-driven view of publishing like is is there is a desire to prove a novel's goodness an essentially neoliberal drive um the angel line was a line of uh, marcus dole's it was his analogy to 
he's he said i i like to think of my editors as angel investors investing in authors dreams <laughs> like we are the silicon valley of media <laughs> investing in dreams and you know it's a it's a portfolio business and some of the dreams come through and others don't but do we still make a profit you know uh, anyway um i mean you've been waiting this entire time yeah to pull yeah out. yeah <laughs> uh i mean he's a very charismatic and charming man marcus um i yeah i, I wasn't we talked outside the outside the trial but i wasn't allowed to interview him because he wasn't at, at liberty to speak at that time mm-hmm. um and then the form the piece took didn't really didn't really call for post-trial interviews because it was again about the experience of witnessing the trial um so i mean the question i mean well the the novel is a form that predates neoliberalism i think it's a very durable form um i'm i'd have to do i i mean i would like to take some time and and uh, come up with my own theories about the novel's relationship to capitalism, to political revolution, to various economic systems. Um, but that I don't. That wasn't really what I was doing in this piece, so I'm not quite sure how to answer that question and and you know like there was very little it at stake in this trial about literary fiction it mm. came, a few witnesses talked about it like um certainly simon schuster ceo jonathan carp talked about his relationship with john irving Michael Peach took the stand. He had been David Foster Wallace's editor, although he didn't really, he didn't discuss their relationship at all. Um, there were the the editor in chief or publisher of Viking talked about a, some short story collections that had had some s- modest success, but uh, the most telling line I thought about when it came to literary fiction was the the publisher of Morrow in video testimony was, and I always forget her name, even though she was the editor of the novel I was reading in the courtroom, Heat 2 by Michael Mann yes. <laughs> and Meg Gardner. She was asked, she's sitting in a conference room on this video and she's asked, uh, and she's mostly an editor of commercial fiction and she's asked, what is literary fiction? And she said, not commercial. Takes a sip of her big Starbucks cup. Might win a prize. <laughs> Accurate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you, do you think there are implications in this trial for readers of this mysterious category of literary fiction or Well, I think that, I mean, the... So you could you could look at it in a number of different ways. Like there, I think the the I think it was the publisher of maybe Dutton. I can't, I can't quite remember. 
Um, you know, there was some testimony about the power of literary prizes, right? And and certainly there's an interest in maintaining prestige, and that is the attraction of literary fiction for corporate publishers. And there's there was also a much repeated and debated concept which came from um, the late uh, CEO of Simon & Schuster who called small presses farm teams for the big presses. So, you know, uh, certainly smaller presses are open, you know, are going after literary fiction and paying smaller advances, if any advances are all for it. But authors that gain success in that environment are often, you know, poached or or picked up by corporate publishers, which is, you know, um, the language poet Charles Bernstein once said to me, like, uh, neoliberalism having, has a way of absorbing anything it can make a profit off of, even its own opposition. Yes. So speaking of his own publication by FSG right. and inclusion in best American poetry, whatever. So, um, and then something I didn't get into in the piece is that small publishers that I've talked to, um, in particular, uh, Dan Simon of seven stories press have, uh, remarked that smaller publishers in the U S are actually given an advantage over their uh, peers in, say, the UK because they're able to avail themselves of the distribution services offered by Penguin Random House, Simon & Schuster, and other corporate distribution services in the United States. I think maybe even Norton has one. So Simon & Schuster and Penguin Random House and the other big publishers are making a profit on all of the smaller publishers at the same time as they're running their own publishing game. So do, but again, in Michael Peach's words, he testified that a super dominant publisher stood to lead to further homogenization of the industry. It was difficult to witness the trial and not think that it was already a very homogenized industry. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think that's exactly what I wanted to discuss next is that, you know, the whole, a lot of this again is that we're trying to do this on behalf of authors. We are trying to open up, remove the barriers to entry. And yet here we are at Harper's Magazine. You're a former editor here. Your sister works in publishing. You used to work at the LRB. Everybody kind of knows everybody. And this is not to say this. This. Well, I mean, to a certain extent, that's the nature of being a professional, right? You go yes. to different places. Uh, you know, you you know, there's only a few cities where where operations like this exist. Uh, I mean, Stephen King spoke of uh, an, an environment in the 70s. I, I'm not sure if he likened it to the Wild West, but he was like, there were a lot of eccentrics. He published some offbeat books with smaller publishers who would sell his books by going to like sci-fi conventions and selling them out of the back of his station wagon. There certainly still exists 
small publishers who do just that. Like if you go to the Brooklyn Book Fest or any number of, um, you know, literary festivals across America or the AWP conference, there are lots of vital small publishers doing just that. And in a way, like uh, Marcus Dole complained that Penguin Random House's market share had been slipping in part because the nature of e-commerce allows all publishers to have similar access to Amazon. Mm. Whereas before e-commerce, the big publishers had an added advantage in that they could muscle out the smaller competition for shelf space at Barnes and Noble and B. Dalton and any other bookstores because it was... You know, there were physical. physical limitations. Yeah. You know, I remember when I was a kid, it was much more common to go to a bookstore and uh, ask them to order a book for you, which you, I guess people still do if they're faithful to their, you know, uh, local bookstore. But um, I think probably far more people just go to Amazon or wherever, or, you know. Well, the, or they don't have a choice yeah. because the choice has been made for them because these these places don't exist anymore. Right, right. Um, although it, it is like the story, you know, you, you mentioned it briefly, but like the story of Barnes & Noble, which was bought by a seemingly ghoulish private equity firm, has actually kind of turned it around. Well, but also, yeah, that, Barnes & Noble used to be the enemy. Apparently, <laughs> yeah, no. I, I, I actually was employed by Barnes & Noble's publishing wing when I was 25 years old working on their Spark Notes. Um, you helped so many children. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wrote, uh, I wrote the No Fear Shakespeare translation of Romeo and Juliet and Macbeth. Wow. Yeah. Um, anyways, uh yeah, no, they just opened, well, in my old neighborhood in Brooklyn Heights, they closed down a Barnes & Noble and opened one down the street. Mm. So, but apparently Barnes & Noble is opening lots more branches. Um, and the same private equity firm, whose name escapes me now, uh, has turned around Waterstones in the UK. So mm. um, it's not necessarily doomsday with such entities uh but the story of the newspaper biz in this country shows that it often is right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and another another publications like book forum no longer around yeah. which is again a crazy situation yeah i have a piece in coming out on that matter soon i hope in a in, a, in another venue you know, you've written about kind of the the sorry state of literary criticism. You know, does this? I mean, parallel- I think I think I think the uh, the state of literary criticism is strong in terms of there being a lot of good young critics, or you know, good critics in every generation in uh, the English language. I think that some shepherds of literary criticism, not including this magazine, have. Uh, been doing it a disservice by turning it into clickbait and recommendation listicles but that that was the subject of a different podcast that's right my first time on this (laughs) podcast yeah well okay so you know the the expansion of waterstones in the uk and barnes and noble here 
you know, you mentioned this briefly, and this has been on my mind because I think it has been on the mind of every publication, regardless of what format it may take. Did, how much did COVID come up? Because there was a huge, there was a twenty percent increase in an industry that is allegedly dying and has been dying for however. Well, years. it only really, like, um, it only came up in the context of COVID leading to a spike in sales, as Marcus Stolle said. Uh, during COVID, the market was like a hockey stick, twenty percent <laughs> increase each year, and then I, I believe, but I'm not sure. I think it's varied. I think it might Simon and Schuster actually might be an exception because they've been they've had um, mega selling author of young adult soft porn Colleen Hoover um, in their stable, so they may not have in, experienced a decrease in overall sales. But I think there's been a slight slump this year. Mm. I don't that wasn't I don't I don't have the numbers on that, so you might have to fact check that. Mm. Um, but the overall market in 2020 and 2021, uh, did experience, you know, steep increases each year. I don't, so I, 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 I'd have to check to see what the final figures for 2022 were. Right. I don't think it was quite as steep once people stopped being shut in <laughs> and stopped having no, nothing to do but read. Yeah, um, no, I mean, because that's, I think that's such an important thing to note and that, that, that the impact of the pandemic on people's willingness to pick up a book, whatever, um, and spend time like that. Because there's always this narrative that it's like, oh, people are getting dumber, people's attention spans, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, there's just a million things to do. Right. There, there are just these, these multitude of options that anyone can Well, take. I mean, I think, I don't know. It's There's always a sort of panic about, you know, are the young people reading? What percentage of the population reads a book every year? Book it. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I grew up in a, in a family and sort of class environment where being a real reader was not the rule. So, uh, and myself being a kind of bookworm made me a weirdo. So I never really take those panics seriously because yeah. I just figure like um, I, when I think of my cousins like reading novels is not their idea of fun mm. and I guess finally you know you, you talk about Andrew Wiley's testimony and, and you know he isn't shy about his interest in literary or intellectual pursuits and he describes his work as essentially hedonistic which is kind of a, a yeah amazing that's way. my word for it but i think it's true to, to he said that they he gets qual he and his colleagues sign up quality authors both because that's what they like to read and because he believes that's the stuff that stands the test of time well would the book world flourish if more people were willing to acknowledge that a lot of literature making uh, you know, literature either making it and reading it is essentially hedonistic, um, especially in a country where you know, in well, America, I th no I th pleasure. I mean, I I think that I think that whether people acknowledge that or not, it's why people. I mean, 
you know, I mean, I, I don't know if people really enjoy reading self-help books. Maybe some of them do. I mean, um, you know, uh, I mean, there are, there are, you know, not just puritanical people like, like, um, the former president, uh, before Joe Biden, I I forget his name, (laughs) um, was a big, like, it seems like the only book he ever read was the power of positive thinking. Right. Um, but I think ultimately pleasure is one of, if not the biggest reason why people read as far as the book business flourishing, it's always going to be a combination of, you know, Wiley said it himself, the commercial flickers and flashes for a moment and then vanishes. And so a lot of commercial books make a lot of money very quickly and then are forgotten and the steady profits made by the publishing industry are made off their backlists you know the backlists fund the gambles that editors make paying these advances on books that they hope will someday you know last long enough to become backlist titles and earn out those advances so it's always going to be a mix of, you know, quality lit and, you know, uh, you know, the stuff that really sells fast. It seemed to me I got the impression that a lot of it was like some form of soft porn, violent porn, violence porn, <laughs> crime stories and self-help. The classics. Yeah. The eternal, the perpetual yeah. classic. Even Auden talked about how he's like, I can't get enough of these shitty detective stories. Oh, yeah. I need to read this. Yeah. Um, but I, do you feel like, I guess, do you feel like the ideal ecosystem of publishing would be distinct for editors, writers, agents, whoever? Or are they, or are they divergent? Like, what, well, I, I don't think any. I, I don't think you could. I, I think to imagine an ideal ecosystem would be a mistake what I think what um, would benefit readers and literature itself would be a like constantly changing uh, heterogeneous ecosystem right that was spread out I mean there are lots of it's not all New York City right right you know there's, feels that way but <laughs> yeah it feels that way to us because we're here but um you know a teeming and uh diverse ecosystem would would is going to please the most readers and benefit the most writers i would say all right well thank you very much thank you violet good to see you <laughs> good to see you You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Madeline Crum, with production assistance by Ian Montgani. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save.